welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Peter Sasselos. I am the Congenital Cardiac Surgery Fellow at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I am privileged to be here today with Dr. Edward Beauvais to discuss the surgical management of truncus arteriosus. He is the first Helen and Marvin Kirsch Professor of Surgery and has been the Chairman of the Department of Cardiac Surgery since 2011. He is considered a pioneer in congenital heart surgery with significant contributions to the field, specifically in hypoplastic left heart syndrome and truncus arteriosus. Dr. Beauvais, thank you for taking the time to provide your expertise towards this TSRA educational endeavor. You're welcome, Peter. Thank you. To begin our discussion, let's consider a pregnant mother who is referred to you with a fetal diagnosis of truncus arteriosus in her child. Can you please describe your conversation with her regarding her child's diagnosis and the planning involved for perinatal management? By the time I've seen them, uh, they've already seen specialists. They have the diagnosis. They know what's going on. Most of them have researched it in some way, shape, or form. And I'll ask them what they do understand and if they have specific questions they'd like to go over and sort of take it from there. More often than not, they'll have a reasonable understanding of it, but then I'll sort of go over just the, the ABCs of what the diagnosis means, uh, what we can do, and, and in general, if, if it's reasonable, and something like this it is, is give them a, a, a hopefully a fairly positive feeling that this is something we can effectively treat and that we can provide them with uh, a, a baby that has an excellent quantity and quality of life. Wonderful. So once the child is delivered, what is your diagnostic evaluation of that patient? Well, um, as, as I think everybody obviously knows, echocardiography today really kind of tells us what you need to know. Um, almost uh, uh, without exception, I guess there are the occasional ones where it might not. But you really want to define that cardiac anatomy very well. And uh, truncus arteriosus um, um, is kind of a wide spectrum of anatomy and you really want to be sure that you understand things quite completely. So, you're looking, of course, at the ventricular size and function. You're looking at the size and the location of the VSD. Admittedly, it is a pretty typical location in truncuses. But I think the thing that you really want to understand very well is the anatomy of that ascending aorta, or truncus, if you will. Make certain that you can see both branch pulmonary arteries and make certain that you understand the anatomy of the aortic arch. Um, the truncal valve function is, is obviously critically important, and our echocardiographers are so good today, they can pretty well tell you exactly where those coronaries are, where they come off from, and all those things uh, are going to be crucial in terms of how you go ahead with the repair. I have sort of a standing joke with them if they tells me that, tell me that it's a classic type 1 truncus, then I usually tell them that, that means that it's a non-confluent PA, because um, if you actually see a long main pulmonary artery segment, more often than not, that's probably not true and should raise a suspicion that the left pulmonary artery in particular is coming from a ductus and is not confluent. Not always the case, but it's a good thing to sort of keep in the back of your mind. Good to know. Um. So once you've completed that preoperative evaluation, can you then describe how you approach timing of the operation? 
Well, I think that's certainly changed throughout, um, you know, my um, professional career. And I certainly remember as a resident and a young faculty, ventricular arteriosis actually was an extremely high risk, very lethal condition. Um, I certainly remember the contributions that were made by Dr. Paul Ebert, who made uh, uh, enormous contributions in terms of getting survival. But the goal then was to sort of wait until these babies were perhaps four, five, six months of age. And it was obvious and quite apparent that many of them didn't live that long. Uh, or perhaps if they did, they came in with many other associated problems, such as uh, pulmonary hypertension, uh, failure to thrive, and the like. So the reality of it is now is that the timing is really an elective, if you will, operation done soon after birth. Um, there's really ever a time that I can think of where you wouldn't want to do that. Most of the time, we don't even send the babies home. We keep them, maybe wait a few days, and that's sort of multifactorial. You'd like to give the parents a little time to be with their baby, to hold the baby, um, and you'd also like the pulmonary vascular resistance that is elevated in, a, in any newborn to begin to drop. But to wait for babies to develop symptoms, which they will but not right away, is probably not a good idea. Because in a lot of truncuses, those symptoms come on quickly and are dramatic. Uh, blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure can drop, particularly with all that pulmonary runoff and diastole, and if you have some degree of truncal valve regurgitation, and they can be unstable and thus suddenly arrest and die. So waiting on these patients generally gains you nothing, and I usually tell the parents right up front that we would do this usually within the first week of life. Okay. So now you've uh, decided to operate on this patient. Uh, let's describe the patient as a patient having type 1 or we can say type 2 truncus arteriosis with no significant truncal valve stenosis or insufficiency and no interruption of the aortic arch. Can you describe the goals of the surgery and the general principles that guide your operation? Sure. The goals, I think, are, are somewhat self-evident. You want the pulmonary um, supply to be uh, driven by the right ventricle at a, as low or normal a pulmonary pressure as you can and to close any intracardiac shunts. Um, in the particular case you've described, we won't be worried about the truncal valve or, or the uh, uh, potential of an aortic arch interruption. So through our standard midline sternotomy, um, Quite often, you certainly look to see and confirm if there's a thymus present, which many off, many cases it's not. But one of the very first things I will do is simply put tourniquets around both the right and left branch pulmonary arteries. Uh, a lot of times under general anesthesia, these babies are now somewhat hypotensive, and this can even get a little worse. And I don't hesitate to snare uh, one branch pulmonary artery right off the bat, typically the left one, uh, to maintain pressure while you're getting ready for bypass. Um, otherwise, I'll have the snares ready to go. Standard bicaval cardiopulmonary bypass is the way that we would go, even in the smallest of infants now. Um, it's almost no size that I can imagine in which we wouldn't do it anymore in terms of perhaps doing it under um, single venous return circuit So it's pretty much standard bicaval bypass with a vent. Bypasses, once bypass is initiated, of course, both the branch pulmonary arteries are then immediately snared so that your systemic perfusion is just that, systemic perfusion, and you're not running off into the lower resistance pulmonary vascular bed. 
At that point in time, uh, one mobilizes the branch pulmonary arteries pretty significantly so that you can free them up completely. Uh, again, confirming that, you, that you've got uh, the type, so-called type one and a half or type two or, or whatever it might be, and be prepared, um, of course, to disconnect them when the time comes. Um, having done all that, um, the aortic clamp is placed. Um, I use a single anti-grade dose of blood cardioplegia, uh, which again, if the truncal valve is competent or reasonably so, is very effective, and with the branch pulmonary artery snared, then is going to um, uh, provide good uh, cardioplegic arrest. I think the most um, challenging part of the operation comes next, and that is removing the branch pulmonary arteries. At first, it sounds somewhat straightforward. If you look at a lot of diagrams, it looks that way. But the proximity of the origin of the pulmonary arteries to the commissures of the truncal valve and to the origin of the right and left coronary arteries sometimes is extremely close and may be very difficult to accurately define when you're looking from the outside in. So I will almost always start with a, a little transverse incision anteriorly uh, on the uh, ascending aorta and then through that I can get a good look inside as to exactly where all of those structures are. Sometimes I'll just continue that incision all the way around, um, sort of uh, removing the common pulmonary artery bifurcation. Uh, sometimes I'll just stop at the short incision there and then make a separate excision of the pulmonary arteries. Depends a little, again, on how much room that I have to, to work with. But uh, as I say, I think that's the part of the operation where critical errors can be made that can, can be really catastrophic. I also think it's, you know, room is precious in there, and to try to take as much tissue as you can on the branch pulmonary arteries is perhaps a nice idea, but the reality of it is is that you know you're going to be back. What you want to do is make sure that you do not in any way undermine or get too close to the origin of a coronary or damage the commissure of a valve, because that's an undoable problem, potentially. So I take the branch PAs off, um, and then repair the ascending aorta, either directly if you can, or probably more often with a small patch, usually with pericardium, or if I've taken a pulmonary allograft, which um, you know I, I prefer to do to reconstruct the right ventricular alpha tract, sometimes a little extra patch of that is a nice way to just sew that in and reconstruct the, the big defect you've now made because you've taken off the branch PAs. Um, at that point in time, since I've already got the exposure, I sew the distal conduit onto the branch pulmonary arteries. I didn't mention it earlier, but I usually like to select an appropriately sized cryopreserved pulmonary allograft. If you can get one around 11, 12 or so millimeters in diameter, that's ideal for most babies. They're hard to find. Um, and sometimes I will uh, bicuspidize a larger one if that's the case. Uh, there are other conduits available, as you know, and you can certainly use them if need be, but I still find that the pulmonary allograft is the easiest to deal with, the easiest to sew, and I don't really think it makes a very big difference in terms of longevity as to which one you're doing. Trying to oversize them uh, has been shown not to be a particularly good idea. It just creates more space problems and it probably, if anything, uh, shortens the longevity of the graft. So I'll put the distal anastomosis on now, and as I say, it's sort of because I've got it all exposed, it's easy to do, and then I can just tuck the homograft inside the chest and then complete the intracardiac portion of the operation. If there's an ASD or any significant atrial defect, I'm do it, of course, through a right atriotomy and, and close that. 
there's a patent foramen, I generally just leave it alone and, and I don't bother with it. Um, the right ventriculotomy has to be made and I think that's another area where one has to be very careful because that truncal valve goes down into the right ventricle a lot further than you might think when, when you actually look at the heart from the outside. So you don't want to make an incision and, and literally damage the valve. It's a good idea to have in mind where you want to make that incision really when you open the chest and first look at the heart. And very typically, I'll even put a little stay stitch there to, to remind myself that that's where I want to be. I'll try to place it, um, obviously, to avoid any major coronaries, if at all possible, and usually you can, and sort of point it a little bit leftward uh, to where the branch pulmonary arteries will be. When you make the incision, sort of start at the bottom of the incision and, and, and look in and make sure, again, that you are not going to damage the truncal valve. Uh, that no worse feeling in the world than to do something like that. So um, make the incision, extend it superiorly to where you feel it's fairly comfortable but gives you a little bit of room under the truncal valve. And then I like to thin the endocardium. I find by doing that I can wind up making a smaller incision and I still have a pretty ample space to put the conduit on. Once you've done that, um, with some appropriately placed stace sutures that hold that incision open, the VSD, more often than not, is an outlet VSD. It's more often not even a perimembranous VSD. So it's actually relatively easy to close because the entire rim is muscular. I use Gore-Tex. What you use, I think, is anyone's choice. People will use pericardium. People will use other material. I quite like the Gore-Tex material. It's so easy to sew to for the most part. You can trim it precisely and take bites right along the edge without worrying that it might fray or anything like that. I don't like Dacron. Oversize the patch when you put it in because you'll always be a bit surprised if you cut it to the size you think is perfect, it'll be too small. Um, not that I haven't made that mistake before, but I would just <laughs> go ahead and put in the bottom of the patch and then as you bring your suture line up towards the truncal valve or the anterior lip of your ventriculotomy, whichever is easier to sew to, it's then a little easier to trim it at that point in time and so you don't leave yourself with just qu not quite enough and then you wind up either trying to make it fit, which is not a good idea because you put tension on the suture line, or you have to patch the patch, which is also not a good idea. So oversize it a little bit in terms of, of the length. Once that's in, um, then really the only thing left is to attach the conduit to your ventriculotomy. So I start to rewarm, systemic rewarm, and I usually cool on a straightforward truncus, maybe 28 or 32, depending a little bit on the size of the baby and how the exposure will be. I don't typically cool much more than that. But you can start to rewarm at that time. I prefer to suture the upper portion of the conduit when the heart is still uh, stopped because you're really sewing that very delicate muscle to the homograft. I just assume that we're not beating and tearing on the suture line. So pretty typically, I'll wait until I have that in. Um, depending on the length between the ventriculotomy and the branch pulmonary arteries, you have one of two options. You can either sew the lower portion of your homograph, in other words, the inlet portion where the valve is, directly to the upper margin of your ventriculotomy and then roof it with a patch. Or you can extend the entire length of the homograph with a circumferential tube of Gore-Tex, uh, roughly the same size as the homograph. I actually like that quite a bit because um, even though you may not need much length, it stabilizes the homograph valve 
puts it in a better position. It, it, it um, removes risk of possible distortion by sewing it on the ventriculotomy. But sometimes, because in small babies, the length and the distance traveled is so short, uh, it's just not a very practical thing to do. So more often than not, I'll sew the, the conduit on and then roof it. Um, as I'm finishing that, the cross clamp comes off. Uh, we'll have an air needle in place and place that to suction. Um, and as the heart is reperfusing, then I will finish that suture line, close the atriotomy, of course, if necessary, and inspect all the suture lines for bleeding. Thank you for that very thorough and uh, detailed explanation and also for pointing out some of the pitfalls that young surgeons could encounter during this operation. Um, and then the last scenario would be for the patient who has truncal valve stenosis or insufficiency. Can you describe how you think about those patients preoperatively and intraoperatively in terms of uh, when you would intervene, when you would decide a truncal valve repair versus replacement, how you go about that on these patients? Well, when you have major problems with the truncal valve, that of course adds uh, the, probably the greatest element of risk. Now. Um, Truncal stenosis is very uncommon, thankfully. It is not uncommon for the echocardiographer to tell you that there might be 30, 40, 50 millimeter of mercury gradient. But of course you have to take that into the context of that the entire cardiac output is going across that valve. And certainly anything up to a gradient of, I would say, at least 30 or 40, I would consider not really important in that scenario. So by and large, if that's the case, you probably do not have hemodynamically important truncal stenosis. So you don't want to be fooled um, uh, and when you see um, a, you know, this gradient being reported like you're going to have to deal with it. You won't, and, and it's meddlesome to do so. Much more than that, you may have to reconsider it. But again, remember that that output across there is very, very high. So when you drop the output, of course, the gradient will proportionately drop with you. Truncal insufficiency, uh, another problem altogether. Um, I really don't do much to the valve unless that truncal insufficiency is at least three or four plus. So mild to moderate, I would probably by and large ignore it. It, it doesn't really appear to have much of an effect on outcome. Um, dealing with the truncal valve isn't easy, and I think you run a risk of making things worse. I would rather let the patient go with as I said, even up to moderate truncal valve regurgitation and let them be and hopefully then deal with it later down the road when you're replacing the conduit if you can then repair the truncal valve and if you are in the unfortunate circumstance of having to replace the truncal valve, you'd certainly rather delay that. But if you have really significant truncal insufficiency, three plus, four plus, um, Certainly, again, you'd like to avoid a truncal valve replacement. You're really, uh, I say you're not going to have anything you can put in there, although I have done it years ago, been able to actually put in a, a mechanical valve in position there. You can literally make that truncal area bigger and place a, a smallest mechanical valve possible. But doing that uh, carries an enormous risk and concern, and putting that valve in a newborn is what you'd like to avoid. So if it's truncal regurgitation, I think it's been fairly well shown that you often can repair these valves, at least if it's not ideal, you reduce the degree of truncal regurgitation to something that's tolerated better. So as we described earlier when you expose the branch PAs, I think this is a case where certainly I would just as soon transect the ascending aorta, uh, go ahead and excise the branch pulmonary arteries, and now you have uh, a much better view of the truncal valve. 
Most of the valves are tri-leaflet, although if you're dealing with severe truncal regurgitation, more commonly you're dealing with a quadricuspid aortic valve. You can try to get a good feel for it. Um, not very long ago, uh, we did a patient who had significant truncal valve regurgitation and just had the four of the most diminutive looking leaflets that were very hard to do anything about. Um, on the other hand, quite often you can either excise the most diminutive of the four leaflets if they're there and make it a tri-leaflet valve or even a bi-leaflet valve. You can bring commissures together um, by sewing the commissure together to, to take two leaflets and make them into one. You're reasonably able to do some of these things that will give you better leaflet coaptation because the valve is very big, so you have a little room to play with, so to speak, without creating truncal stenosis. And as I said, I think the goal really, um, the goal is obviously to make the valve to work as well as you can, but, but trying to make the valve work perfectly is often not very realistic. And you don't really even need to do that so long as you can come out with um, a patient who has hopefully no more than moderate truncal regurgitation is usually pretty well tolerated. Okay. Uh, so now you've done a complete repair of truncus arteriosus. Can you now describe your expected immediate postoperative period and the appropriate management of these patients? Well, um, first thing, of course, is in the operating room, you really want to measure pressures when you come off bypass. You want to have a pretty good idea of what is your RV pressure, what are your filling pressures. I don't hesitate to leave a left atrial line, and in fact, in most very complex repairs, I would leave a left atrial line through the vent site so that we have a good handle on uh, filling pressure, if you will, on the left side of the heart. Um, if you're coming off with pretty low right ventricular pressures, you know, you should really expect that the course is going to be pretty benign, and it, and it should be. Um, the era where these patients, as I mentioned earlier, were, were um, sort of put off until they were five, six, eight months of age, it is now gone because quite candidly, what one saw there were these so-called pulmonary hypertensive crises, which now nobody seems to even know what they are, but which is good. And we don't tend to see that. We don't tend to see this labile pulmonary hypertension problem where pulmonary pressures can really jump up, uh, particularly if there's a transient ventilatory problem or suctioning the baby or what have you, and then you might get suprasystemic right ventricular pressures leading to complete cardiac arrest. We just don't see it very more, thankfully because the babies are operated on when they're in much better condition and before those kinds of changes occur, and they can occur rapidly. So uh, the first decision is, do you close the chest? Um, and that's predicated a little bit on stability. Um, are the hemodynamics good? Uh, do you have ample room because of the conduit? Do you have low right ventricular pressures? And is your hemostasis good? I don't hesitate to leave the chest open, quite candidly, if those situations are borderline and wait a day or two and close the chest. Um, however, that said, I think it's always nicer to close if you can. I haven't routinely left um, patches, uh, like a Gore-Tex membrane or something in there, and, and maybe perhaps it would, wouldn't be a bad idea to do it more often, to be honest with you, but by and large the conduit is out of the way when you go back in but that it isn't a bad idea to leave something like that uh, to make your eventual re-entry into the chest safer. Um, Inotrope-wise, um, uh, milrinone is sort of a drug we kind of use for just about everything, um, and hopefully no more than a low-dose dopamine or maybe a low-dose 
uh, epinephrine. And as I said earlier, I think if really, if your hemodynamics are good, uh, and the baby going into surgery was in good shape, predicated on all of those things, the reality of it is that the postoperative course ought to be pretty benign, and hopefully you could extubate early, um, soon after either a delayed sternal closure or soon after uh, coming out of the OR, depending on the conditions. Okay. And then what do you uh, discuss with the families in terms of long-term considerations, in terms of need for reoperations, quality of life, and outcomes in these patients? Um, all of those things are terribly important, and, and we tend to sometimes overlook those things. But I think it's very helpful since I have uh, enough gray hair and experience now to tell them that I've got a number of patients who are literally well into their 20s and um, have families of their own and are doing extremely well. So I do tell them that, that this is very um, compatible with an excellent long-term prognosis. However, re-intervention is going to be necessary. Uh, by and large, I tell them that it's typical to go I'd say three to five years until the first reoperation is done. Um, so it's unpredictable, but by and large, if you look at the data, you're in that three to five year range, at which point the conduit's obstructive, it's, it, it, the RV pressure's high, and you want to re-intervene. Re um, you're not going to be able to do this percutaneously, of course, because you have a small conduit, so that first reoperation will be to replace the conduit. That's the time that you want to have good data to see, are the branch PAs okay? Have you left the stenosis possibly at the original operation, which although it didn't have much effect in terms of the baby's post-operative and, and uh, early post-operative course, now's the time you'd like to address that. You don't have to worry, hopefully, about any other residual issues, assuming that's the case. And so then I like to get a little bit uh, more definitive about maybe patching onto a branch PA should it be necessary so that now you you set the stage for better long-term issues. Okay, wonderful. Well, Dr. Bobet, uh, thank you again for your time. It has been a pleasure and honor to interview you on this interesting topic. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.